Marketing, a weekly podcast where we discuss the issues and opportunities facing marketing, media and advertising with industry thought leaders and practitioners. Today I'm sitting down with Mish Fletcher, Chief Growth Officer for Asia Pacific for IPG, also known as the Interpublic Group. Welcome, Mish. Thank you, Darren. It's great to be here. Mish, I said the Interpublic Group. For those people, most of the people in the industry know IPG, but a lot of people actually don't remember that that actually means the Interpublic Group, which is a publicly listed company on the New York Stock Exchange, correct? That's right. And my email address is actually at Interpublic, so I have a reminder of that every day. <laughs> and Interpublic Group actually uh, represents quite a diverse portfolio of quite strong industry brands, doesn't it? You've got some really great brands in there. Absolutely. Well, arguably, I would say some of the most instantly recognisable um, creative and media brands, you know, obviously McCann is is huge, um, Mullen Low, RGA, and then within the um, media brand side of things, obviously UM um, Initiative, and then some really fabulous uh, PR agencies as well, such as Weber Shamwick and Golan. Um, there's also our newer capabilities that we've acquired sort of in more recent years, um, Axiom, which is our data company, Kineso, which is our, our customer intelligence agency, Hedy, which is our um, marketing automation, um, and then um, IPG Studios, which is all about agile production. So yeah, we've got a very, very uh, robust offering that we go to market with. And it's a true global network, isn't it? I think IPG has operations in virtually every country in the world. I think it's about 100 countries. Yep, that's yeah. right. And obviously in Australia, and I'm very fortunate to be here as well. So one of the big issues that I think the whole industry is really, um, you know, struggling with, and I say struggle, is uh, diversity and inclusion because, you know, this is an issue that's been around for decades, but it's interesting that during the pandemic it really came to the fore, not just for the industry but for uh, especially in the US and other markets with what was happening in, in the world and, uh, but the advertising industry particularly has been confronted by it and is working hard to address it, I imagine. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, I think for years, Madison Avenue, and as you know, I was in New York for many years, and, you know, it really was being run by, you know, grey-haired white guys. And, um, you know, they're not really representative of um, the, the rest of the population and certainly not representative of many of our clients' customers. Um, you know, I think it was Mark Pritchard when he got the top job at um, Procter & Gamble, you know, somewhere like 2014, 2015, something like that. And, and he basically challenged all of his agencies and said, I don't want to see the same faces all around this boardroom. I want to see... Um, the reflection of the types of people who are buying my products. And, you know, he's selling Tide detergent and, and nappies and stuff like that. Like, you know, we need to make sure that we are having this diversity of thought and bringing that to the table. And that's super, super important. And it's interesting, um, you know, you mentioned about the faces around the boardroom. One of the big areas uh, and, and a figure that's thrown up is that 70 plus or 80% of all purchase decisions are made by women. 
and yet agencies today still often find themselves with the senior, most senior leadership of most of the agencies still uh, largely men. Isn't that right? Yes, I, I would agree with that. And I look, I do think we're seeing um, that change. And I certainly think there have been some really, really strong um, trailblazing women who've um, who've broken the glass ceiling. You know, somebody like Shelley Lazarus, who was who's now the chairman emeritus um, of Ogilvy, but obviously she led Ogilvy for a very, very long time. And I think that um, you know she was perhaps one of the first um, women to lead a big agency network. But but you're right. Like you know, we've known for years, right? When we assemble teams, you need to get people who bring different skills to the team, right? You know, you've got this person who's really creative and this person who's analytical and this person who's really organised. And we've always known that we need those different personality types, but it sort of seems to have eluded the industry that we also need this sort of representation from across the population, these people who've had different lived experiences and can bring a different perspective to the business. Yeah. The other one that uh, uh, often comes up as well is the ageism in uh, advertising mm. because it, you know, it, it flippantly is called the young person's business and yet in many ways that's true because as you rise through the ranks of advertising, invariably we all get older, but there's not as many positions at the top as there are at the bottom and so often we find a lot of uh, great talent and experience actually leaving the big jobs in the big agencies. Yeah, or getting pushed out. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I think that that's changing. I see some really great um, female leaders that I've worked with in, in agencies over the years who are actually landing some really big plum roles. So I would like to believe that it's changing. I must say my experience at Accenture was such that um, at Accenture, your age and experience were really valued. And um, that, that was quite a uh, reassuring um, perspective. And, and also, you know, there was much greater propensity to hire people, for example, with disabilities. And, you know, having come through the agency ranks, I'd never had the opportunity to meet with somebody with a disability. They just weren't represented at the agency level. But within Accenture, um, there's this um, attitude that we actually want to hire people with disabilities because they know how to problem solve and they know how to get things done. I also, um, through our practice in the US, get the sense that it's even a hotter issue, this whole area of uh, diversity and inclusion, than it is in other markets. You know, the US really seems to be uh, driving this globally because in many ways of the social inequities that are occurring there. I mean, you're, how long were you in the US for? It was more than a 17 decade, Yeah, 17 years. Yeah. And, and you would have seen that, uh, that sort of those issues evolving over that time. Yes, and everything I think really kind of bubbled up to the surface during COVID and with the murder of George Floyd and all of the um, civil unrest and um, protests, mostly peaceful protests. There were some sort of patches of, of um, you know, rioting and violence and stuff like that. But yes, I felt that there was, it, it felt like this sort of sense that everybody had just had enough. And that COVID was in a way maybe the straw that broke the camel's back and everybody was just like, no, we're not taking this anymore. Things have to change. And there was this huge energy and groundswell that I certainly felt and experienced while I was there. 
and that's juxtaposed by the um, the Trump presidency, which was very much this rise of the working class and the, particularly the white working class that had also been disenfranchised by you know what many people call neoliberalism. You know that the the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer. And uh, we had white poor people feeling that they were also being disenfranchised as well. I think that's true. And I think the hallmark of Trump's presidency um, will always be one of divisiveness. And yeah. um, I think he did a lot of damage. Now, it's an interesting journey. You've already mentioned Accenture Interactive. But, you know, let's go back to uh, there you are sitting in uh, high school, going to university and then suddenly saying to yourself, what's my career? What am I going to do? How did you get into PR? It was PR, wasn't it? I started in PR. Okay, so let's go way back. Thank you, Darren. Um, but yes, I studied, well, when I left um, school, I went to the University of New South Wales and I studied a Bachelor of Commerce majoring in marketing. And um, I loved the marketing subjects and we had one subject on PR and I just thought it sounded really interesting and, um, and sort of an opportunity to shift perceptions. And I sort of had this notion as well that I was going to get involved in, um, you know, doing good for society as well by, by uh, joining the PR profession. Um, but uh, of course, when, um, when uni finished, I couldn't, I couldn't wait to leave. So I took a year off and backpacked around Europe by myself and then came back sort of right during the middle of a, um, a recession. And that wasn't great. And, uh, you know, each week there'd sort of be one marketing job um, advertised in the newspaper and there were like you know, 500 applicants for this one job for an entry-level marketing person. So I sort of had a job that was paying the bills, but I was deeply unhappy and I was determined to get into PR. So I actually enrolled in some postgraduate study. So I was studying PR part-time and I recognised that if I wanted to break into this profession, I needed some experience. So I started doing volunteer work. So I was uh, working for a charity. It was um, or a charitable organisation, not for profit. It was the Friends of the Sydney Symphony Orchestra. So I was working full time, studying part time and doing um, uh, a pro bono work. Yeah, pro bono work. Exactly. And um, anyhow, so, you know, desperately wanted to break into PR and I took a week off work and I researched the top PR agencies in, in Sydney and the people who are making the hiring decisions. And I got all dressed up in my power suit with my gold buttons and my shoulder pads. And I um, basically walked into the reception of all of these agencies and just demanded to see Ian Cropper. And, and they would go, uh, do you have an appointment? And I would say, no, but he needs to meet me because I'm his next great hire. And um, half the time, Ian Cropper or whomever would come out because he was like, who is this person in reception? And then I had two notes prepared. One, if he chose to see me and I would say, this is me, this is my resume, you need to hire me. And I kind of had my spiel. And then the other one was if he couldn't hire me. And that's how I got my job. That's how I got my break in PR. Fantastic. Now, look, I, first of all, I will say, and, and uh, please forgive me, I said way back, only because <laughs> in this industry, anything that's more than five years seems like a long time ago and we sort of write it off as ancient history. So <laughs> I'm not uh, casting any uh, no. judgment value on the start of your not career. Not at I all. Think experience counts for everything. <laughs> Secondly, why PR? When you've done a, a, a course in marketing, PR is actually a sort of a, a segment of marketing and a yeah. particular, very particular segment. What was it? 
I just, well, like I said, I thought that maybe I could do some good. I could um, work on sort of issues that were important to me. And that job that I did take was at the Rolling Company, which was later acquired by Edelman. And um, I was involved in some um, campaigns such as Clean Up Australia, which was really important. I was also involved in a lot of sort of um, issues-based health accounts, which again was something that really kind of resonated with me. So, yeah, and also I didn't really like all of the the quantitative side of the marketing, so I sort of just wanted to work more in the um, on the promotional side. But definitely that desire to to do something that was going to change the world. I think I was very idealistic back then. It, it's interesting because the advertising agencies that particularly get cut through also particularly get the power of PR, not to just promote the ads they've made, but actually coming up with ideas that work in PR, that work at getting audiences to get excited or get, be interested or, you know, stand out. You know, and, and I'm thinking, you know, Droga 5 is a good example. Um, uh, I did an interview with Anthony Friedman at Host. Host was certainly built on that. Um, Thinkabell today is definitely a company in Australia that does that. So, you know, is, is that also part of it? Because there is something quite powerful and quite immediate about PR. I think that's a really interesting observation that um, the uh, work that seems to be getting traction just kind of maybe taps into some sort of social phenomenon or something that we think is really going to capture the imagination of, of the public and then the kind of the work flows through that. So, yeah, I, I would agree. I think that that's, you know, when we think about activations, we think about cut through, we think about seizing headlines. You're right, that is very PR driven. And um, I also think, you know, a lot of the distinctions that we make between PR and digital and advertising. I mean, everything seems to be really kind of blurring into one. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I think uh, this omni-channel approach or this idea that, uh, you know, it's not just about doing your advertising, that it's actually looking at every opportunity of engaging an audience, because one of the hardest things to do today is to actually compete for someone's attention. I mean, there's so many things that you're competing with that finding the most powerful channels and leveraging them well is so, so important. Right. And then all of the, you know, media fragmentation and everybody's attention is so split. You know, how can you kind of um, encompass the individual with a campaign that really sort of seizes the imagination. I do think it is also tapping into some sort of cultural phenomenon or, or something that's really topical or relevant. And that's a really great PR skill. So Mish, one of the things I noticed is that yeah, from going into PR, you then ended up really using those skills, the PR skills in what is the classic B2B category, which is helping agencies promote themselves. I mean, yeah, of all the things that a PR person could do, you you ended up really specialising and excelling at working with agencies where a lot of people say, well, advertising agencies should know how to promote themselves, but they don't, do they? They really oh, do gosh. need people to help them work out how to do that. 
A hundred percent. The the cobbler's children, I would uh, I would definitely think is the case. And you, you know, you're right. I did then kind of parlay my PR experience into um, an opportunity in London, and and then I went to work for um, a, a technology led PR agency called um, McLaurin. And um, it was actually my old boss at the Rolling Company who then tapped me to move to London because I'd always said that I wanted to, I wanted to live and work overseas. I sort of felt that I needed to spread my wings and, and go elsewhere. And, and I had the opportunity to establish essentially that, like business, we called it business communications and that was the department. And um, the specialty was working with agency brands and, in fact, communications brands. We had um, media brands and we had um, design brands and basically working for all of these clients in order to build their reputations in the, in the B2B space. And I really liked it. Yeah, because uh, a lot of agencies sort of sit there wondering why, you know, they do great work for their clients. Why don't they become instantly famous? And, uh, you know, it's because they don't really get how to build their own brand, do they? No, they don't. I also think that there's this kind of weird um, uh, phenomena in advertising agencies where they separate, they tend to separate out the growth function and the marketing function, right? Yes. Or they have like comms people and then growth people. And they might kind of talk to each other, but I, there's no overarching strategy. And I think that that's a real opportunity to do both new business and marketing and bring it all under one roof because then you get all of the synergies from doing it like that. Yeah, and, and that's so true. I mean, there's the team that fill out the mindless RFPs and there's those that actually do, uh, you know, um, uh, trade media uh, management and events and things like that really as ways and, and publications as ways of building the profile of the agency. Yeah, exactly. And so, for example, if if um, if we wanted to launch a new capability, right? Um, and I've I've done many of those over the the course of my career. But you know, launch the capability, but think about it with the end in um, at the beginning, which is well, we want to you know generate leads and we want to drive revenue for this capability. So then, how can we back into it? And then how can we actually create the angle, create the hypothesis and the hook for let's say a piece of thought leadership or an original piece of research um, that actually then points to the capability that we're wanting to sell? And then how can we um, surround our targets with all of these touch points, as as you mentioned before, and that's PR and it's also maybe um, you know, just play, you know, straight, um, you know, sales enablement and actually meetings. And how can we like create all of the assets and all of the materials to stitch the whole campaign together, as opposed to just kind of thinking about it through separate lenses. And um, I'm, I'm jumping ahead in my career here. I was going to sort of talk about that. That was a lot of what I did when I was at Ogilvy One. And, and B2B is quite different from B2C as well. I mean, people say it's the same discipline, but it's actually quite a different way of thinking. I know business people are still people, but right. a consumer purchase is quite a different consideration to a business purchase. Absolutely. And we know that the sales cycle is much longer and much more complex in the B2B world than it is in the B2C world. And and actually, that's one of the things that I like about it. It's sort of a little bit more of a of a, of a long game um, and a little bit more of a, a challenge. You may not, you know, yes, there, there could be sort of, a, you know, some short term impact, but you're really going to see the um, 
the results, the effectiveness of your work sort of further down the line. And that's also, you know, building the reputation and the more you build the reputation, the more you build your business and the more you build your business, the more you build the brand and then the, it sort of becomes this hopefully sort of um, cumulative um, process like a snowball cascading down the hill. Well, one of the things uh, I noticed as a copywriter in agencies was that it was very difficult to get anyone, even senior management, to commit to a particular positioning or a set of values that they stood for because they wanted to be everything to everyone. They mm. didn't want to actually etch out a particular positioning because what if a cl potential client came along and that didn't suit that client? You know, that, and that, yet that's one of the things that agencies are highly critical of their clients for not committing to, you know, the unique selling proposition or the, you know, the universe, the the, um, the ultimate positioning in the marketplace. And yet agencies so struggle with it because driven by what you said before, you know, the, the growth, growth says I want as many clients as possible and I don't mind where they come from. But marketing actually says let's stand for something and have that be the thing that differentiates or, or makes us distinctive from all the other agencies. Oh, yeah, well said. And um, yes, having done many agency credentials over the years, um, I can tell you that it's pretty hard to reach consensus. Um, and you've got a lot of people with very, very strong opinions. But, but you're right, we would advise our clients to um, establish a clear point of difference and, you know, crack open that sort of, you know, gap and then, you know, charge through it. So, yes, you're absolutely right. We need to do the same. And I think that that sort of raises an interesting point around sort of the commoditization of the industry, right, and the importance now more than ever of really having that, that, clear, that clear point of difference. I mean, I've sat through thousands of uh, credentials presentations and very few of them stand out because everyone ends up saying the same thing. It's almost like, you know, they, there's a list of things that everyone thinks they should be and they just automatically, the water runs into those, uh, those positions and everyone ticks it off and you walk out of there going, you know, what am I meant to remember? And the other thing is they occasionally you'll have an agency that has a very clear, powerful and distinctive proposition which they might put up front, they might bury it somewhere in the middle or they might mention it as you're walking out the door at the end. But very few of them are committed to actually building the whole story around that proposition and actually reinforcing it over and over again. Because, you know, one of the things that we say to our clients is, you know, say it, say it again, say it, say it, you know, and, and just keep saying it until it gets in. But agencies will change the the proposition uh, as quickly as they'll who, uh, change their underpants daily, <laughs> hopefully. Uh, hopefully, exactly, <laughs> exactly. You know, and I think, you know, sort of our industry has undergone a lot of change, certainly in the, the time that, um, you know, I've been um, fortunate to be part of the advertising industry. You know, it's it's such an incredible transformation. It's, it's quite interesting as well. Like when I first joined Ogilvy One and, you know, Ogilvy One, for those who don't know, is was it doesn't exist as a brand anymore, but it was sort of the digital data tech um, arm of Ogilvy. And when I first joined, it was in many ways we were kind of um, 
maybe sort of the, the, the poor cousin, right? And that nobody thought that the data tech space was particularly sexy or interesting. It was all about what was then called above the line, right? And doing, you know, 30 second TVCs and maybe a two minute cut for cinema or something like that. But I just have observed that, you know, oh, the tables have turned because now everybody wants to be in the sort of data inspired tech enabled space because we know that that is what's delivering value for clients, right? Yeah. They, you know, it's all about being able to target your, audience with you know laser precision right and serve up really meaningful messages that are going to resonate with them and and translate into action and build loyalty and you know there you go look i i love this because you know i i was a big fan of lester wonderman who only passed away a couple of years ago but uh, you know what lester was writing about in the 60s and 70s of you know pathways, mapping out customer pathways and having a typing pool of women typing up personalised <laughs> letters and mailing them to people with paid responses. And when the response came out, they'd get either response A, B or C going back. And, you know, and it was done over weeks and weeks because it was all done by letter and mail. You know, and can you post. imagine how he felt with the digitization of the industry? And, real and time, I... <laughs> real time response with uh, you know ultimate personalization based on customer data, uh, and and at scale. You know the thing that would limit is how many typists can I fit in the typing pool. Whereas <laughs> now it's how many terabytes can I put on the server and how much grunt can I put behind it. To actually and 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 is my AI effective in actually learning from the responses that I see from my customers to be able to personalize their experience and increase the chance of converting? And and isn't that awesome that he lived to see that Absolutely. happen? And in fact, I never really met him personally, but I have certainly been at events in which he was honoured. So, um, yeah, tr a true icon and um, yeah, somebody who really transformed the industry. But he also saw that transformation of, as you said before, the below the line became the game, you know, and everyone wanted to play it. I love it when uh, I'm talking to people and they go, well, I used to be what was called a direct marketer. And I go, I love you already. Because I think direct marketers are the ones that know the, the philosophy, the methodology that needs to be applied today. There's too many people working in digital and tech that are digital and tech people, but they don't actually get direct marketing. Right. They get the and technology. They don't get the way of using it for human beings because human beings haven't changed that much in uh, 100,000 years. Yeah, you're right. It's, a, it's like the golden age of direct marketing. It is, yeah, absolutely. So that's Ogilvy One, but then you went to Accenture Interactive. I mean, in many ways, that's quite a leap, isn't it? Well, it was kind of the same job. I mean, I was the global head of marketing at Ogilvy One, and then I became the global head of marketing at Accenture Interactive. Um, and I think in many ways, I, I kind of joined at that sort of pivotal moment when Accenture Interactive wanted to compete head-to-head 
with um, with agencies. So it was um, it was a it was a great opportunity and um, hell of a ride. And um, you know we did some some incredible things um, during the, the three years that I was there. And um, you know certainly really built such a strong um, agency brand and um, launched some great capabilities. Um, worked very closely with uh, Brian Whipple the former CEO of Accenture Interactive. So, yeah, it was um, it was pretty wild. But it was also a time when you know, Accenture and the other consulting firms were seen as the enemy of the agencies. You know, there was quite a... And, and it's only been recently, you know, with acquisitions of some big agency, you know, creative agency brands mm-hmm. like Droga5 and, and Karma Armour and the like, that that started to change. But mm-hmm. even then... They, they're still seen as sort of, you know, are they pretenders or are they real threats or what is it? Yeah. Um, well, you know, and that that whole kind of consultancies versus agencies narrative I, it was getting pretty tired. And, and that was actually one of the reasons why we kind of wanted to create an entirely new category. Um, and, th- you know, that was the experience agency. And it was actually Anatoly, uh, Anatoly rather, uh, Reutemann, who was the um, head of Accenture Interactive in Europe. And he had this, initially had this vision around, you know, creating an experience agency. Um, and so that was kind of one of the things that, that we wanted to do was just go, well, hold on, you know, consultancies versus agencies, that's, that's boring. Let's just create an entirely new category. And, you know, what tends to happen in my experience when you do try to create a new category is that you're initially met with cynicism and when the media report on it, they'll use like quotation marks around experience agency as though this isn't a real thing. But then, of course, you know, imitation is the most sincere form of flattery and over time now there are lots of agencies. We're an experience agency. There you go. (laughs) There you go. So I kind of have a bit of a chuckle when I see that. But then you went from Accenture Interactive back to, you know, agency in a way, FCB6. Yeah, and I went from like a huge like Accenture Interactive to something that was really, really small and, and that was quite deliberate. Was that a big godfather part too, you know, just as I got out they dragged me back in? Was that the sort of... <laughs> oh, the agency world? Yeah. <laughs> Um, You know, I think after having worked for a really big company, I was really inspired to work for a small company. And and I was very impressed with the CEO, Andrea Cook. Um, And FCB6 has now been reinvented as performance art. It's still within the IPG family. Um, And, you know, that was – but what what really attracted – me to the agency was just the incredible work those guys were doing. Um, you know, some really, really groundbreaking work, bringing together creativity and data in a way that nobody was, like really reimagining what was possible. Some really breakthrough work for um, a company that specializes in um, black travel. We did some amazing work for um, Destination Pride with P Flag, um, some incredible work as well um, with uh, Tamara Burke's um, Me Too organization. And what was so interesting about all of that is that um, it it was platforms. It was platforms that lived on. It wasn't sort of like a short burst campaign. And those platforms still exist for all of those um, all of those. Uh, uh, clients that we work for. And I just thought that is really interesting. That is the future. So I was really, really attracted to that. 
It's really interesting that you say that because, you know, a lot of the industry talks about, you know, creative ideas or creative platforms, but really they're talking about executions in a way, executions on a strategy, but actually building platforms that Mm -hmm. exist within culture and within society is so powerful because, as you say, it gets a cultural support. It gets a you know people support that carry them on beyond the campaign or beyond the execution. Yeah, and as the platform exists and it generates um, data, and that data then informs the platform, and that it continues to grow and evolve, and it just becomes this kind of almost organic thing that um, that people will go back to time and time again versus something that's just kind of a you know, flash in the pan. So I just I thought that the the work that um, that you know performance art now um, was doing was just so amazing, and um, and of course now doing lots of work for BMW in uh, in the US. So and and then they made you an offer you obviously couldn't refuse. They said uh, go west, young woman, to uh, Asia Pacific, <laughs> the most diverse. Uh, markets in the world, you know, not just from language, but culture, finance, currency, economy, you know, there's so many diversities to manage in APAC. I, I always love it when my European colleagues tell me how diverse Europe is, and I go, come and spend some time in Asia Pacific. But uh, now you're here, and you're driving the business growth for uh, IPG across Asia Pacific. Yes. And gosh, I wish I could go and visit some of the markets, Darren. I'm like, soon, <laughs> soon. soon, hopefully desperate, desperate to get off the island and, and go and meet all of these people that I've had um, the opportunity to sort of connect with virtually over the last seven or eight months. So yeah, no, a- amazing opportunity. And um, it kind of you know, worked out really well in that. And rarely do things work out quite so well, Darren, when um, I just in the in the middle of the pandemic just really wanted to be in Australia um felt like the safest part of the world to be and um and at the same time my boss um the global chief growth officer Simon Bond was looking for somebody to fill this role so very serendipitous for me and um yeah it's it's been amazing I've I've loved every minute of it I I really love IPG as an organisation, um, it has a great culture and I feel like it's a really great fit. And, um, yeah, amazing people, amazing agencies. And I feel like we're just getting started, so more to come. Maybe you'll have me back on your show at some point in the future and I can tell you all about what we've been doing. So absolutely, Mish. And, and <laughs> one of the things I'll be interested in is that you, you know, at an IPG level, you've got quite diverse offerings, you know, I mean, a, and, and a very broad spectrum of marketing comms and and all the related businesses you're now working in quite a diverse marketplace or region because as i said before asia pacific um you're going to be working with huge and and diverse numbers of, of people across those marketplaces what do you see are the biggest challenges or the biggest opportunities in this role Absolutely, the fact that you know every market is so unique and different, um, and so 
we see a lot of um, regional activity, but it's all kind of driven at a local market level. Um, so that's certainly been my, my observation so far. Um, yeah, certainly sort of the languages and cultures, and, and I'm still kind of learning all about it. Um, but yeah, I would definitely say that diversity is one and, and you know, creating regional solutions, but that are very applicable at the local market level. So yeah, that's that's kind of been a big focus. I think the other part for me is really um, helping sort of modernize the offering that we're bringing to clients through the lens of data, through tech, like bringing able to, um, or sorry, rather being able to bring sort of these, these newer assets and capabilities and finding ways to um, help clients um, really connect with their customers and, and grow their businesses. So, you know, that's that's something and I'm sort of, you know, working on a you know market by market basis at the moment. But there um, there certainly seems to be a lot of activity. You know, I'm pleased to say that I feel like Asia is starting to kind of re-emerge from, from COVID. There's some sort of optimism. There, there seems to be sort of some, um, you know, Certainly just, you know, a lot a lot of RFPs, big flurries of RFPs and, and just sort of a lot of energy, a lot of, um, I would say, cautious excitement. But I, I definitely feel like we've turned a corner and I think that it's going to be a great year, the year of the tiger. Absolutely. Yes, the year of the tiger this year. Um, what, what are some of the things that you've learnt looking back on your career? What, is, what would be the lessons that you've taken into this role, you know? You know, I always joke to people that I'm I'm a great coach and mentor because I've made all of the mistakes, so I can advise people on the mistakes not to make. Um, you know, I think I think one of the biggest things that I've had to learn is sort of to let go of um, my perfectionist streak, and I think that that's something that a lot of women um, suffer from. You know, and and you know, we just try to be so um, get everything perfect. Um, as opposed to just kind of get it out the door. Um, that's been a really big learning for me. Um, another another thing is just to kind of reframe mistakes as experiences and just move on. And once again, I do think women sometimes have a habit of um, beating ourselves up. Um, and uh, so definitely just being able to go, right, that didn't go quite the way I wanted it to. So I'm going to learn from that experience and do things differently next time. Um, so definitely that. I think, um, you know, I think it's also about, um, you know, knowing your worth and knowing the value that you bring to organisations and knowing that um, you can have a conversation. I think women sort of try to avoid some of those difficult conversations around salary and promotions and resourcing and things like that. And and I certainly have been like that through, um, you know, maybe some of the earlier stages in my career. But I feel like as you um, learn through your experiences and you're more prepared to have um, conversations to help you, uh, you know, get what both what you want and what the company needs. So yeah. it's, a, it's a two way street. Look, I think it's really interesting. And, and I'm sitting here listening to, to your insights, Nish, and I'm thinking it's also been interesting because you compound or, or not compound, but reflect that on the fact that your role has largely been promoting other businesses. 
Whereas a lot of what you're talking about is a, is also learning how to promote yourself. And I think a lot of mm. people really struggle with that. A lot of women will find themselves very comfortable being, you know, doing all the planning and all the, and then putting someone else first, usually a male, to actually deliver that message. But we'll often feel either it's because, you know, they don't feel that they're going to be perfect, they're going to be, you know, concerned around how will they be judged for any mistakes they make uh, or not valuing the worth, they're the three that you, you said, mm-hmm. to actually stand up and be that voice and be the lead on it. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you've reflected on? Yes, and I have, you know, quite consciously spent time building my personal brand um, because, you know, we if we want to change, you know, some of the, you know, the issues around, you know, lack of female representation at really senior levels of leadership, um, if we want to change the fact that women earn 23% less than men, you know, what can we as women do differently? And I think it is about visibility and I think personal branding is a really important part of that. Um, And, you know, for me, branding kind of begins with, your personal branding just sort of begins with just self-awareness and knowing what your strengths are and what your values are. And then, you know, once you've been able to identify that, then you can ensure that you live your values, that the actions that you take exhibit those. Um, and really that's how you um, build your build your reputation. So, you know, for me, something that's extremely important to me whenever I do like a strengths finder or something like that, you know, something that comes up is honesty and respect and respect for others. So, you know, I have always tried to um, be as honest and transparent in my interactions with others. I always try to, uh, you know, for example, I always try to be very punctual because I think that that's respectful of others to do that. So just looking for ways to build to build your personal brand and and build your reputation and know that people are going to come to rely on you because of these strengths that you exhibit. And then just, you know, another part to that is visibility, right? And I think I think you're right. I think um, women, and I've also, you know, spent a lot of my career um, building the reputations of the CEOs that I've worked for. Um, but, you know, I think we as women need to be more comfortable stepping into the spotlight and, um, you know, building building our own sort of platforms, having something meaningful to say um, and, you know, doing things like intentional networking and, you know, actually having sort of a robust profile on LinkedIn and agreeing to do podcasts and <laughs> uh, speak, and speak on stage. <laughs> look, and, and the great thing is that there is more and more opportunities, you know. And in fact, I know that uh, a lot of events, industry events, are looking for women to step up and wanting the, you know, to take the opportunities to share their knowledge, share their perspective, share, you know, their, their particular perspective on a whole range of issues, you know, because I think the days of hearing the same group of, you know, male, pale and stale is exactly <laughs> that. And and so, you know, this is the, this is the opportunity. I know you're a very uh, a keen and committed mentor but have you had your own mentors? Yeah, are you committed to mentoring because you've had some great mentors? 
I I do have um, some great, great mentors. I would definitely say um, Brian Featherstonha, who was the CEO of Ogilvy One, has been an incredible career uh, mentor to me and also um, maybe earlier on in my career, Sue Sutton, who gave me my first break in PR um, when I thought I was going to change the world. And um, <clears throat> yeah, so, and I, I do think it's, it's very important to have somebody that you can discuss your um, career issues and opportunities with and bounce things off and get their advice and people who are more experienced than you and have seen it all. And yes, I, I am committed. I do mentor a lot of, a lot of young women and um, I'm always just like so thrilled when I see them get ahead and get amazing, amazing new jobs and opportunities. And if I can play some small part in, in helping them achieve that, that makes me happy. I think it's interesting as well, Darren, that you kind of brought the conversation back to diversity, right? You know, women um, on stage and speaking and representation. There you go. You've done this before. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, you led me there. I was just following <laughs> where you took the conversation. But, Mish, this has been a terrific uh, conversation. I wish you all the luck. I'm sh you are more than credentialed to do an outstanding job building uh, IPG in Asia Pac. Uh, it's going to have its challenges, I'm sure, but uh, you are more than equipped to excel. So thank you for taking the time and having a chat today. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Look, I just have one question before you go, and that is, uh, do you think that uh, Accenture Interactive will eventually take over the advertising world? Mm -hmm.